Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. The U.S. Senate passes a $95 billion aid package for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. Cairo hosts talks on a potential Israel-Gaza ceasefire. Trump seeks a Supreme Court pause in his 2020 election case. DA Fonnie Willis could be disqualified from Trump's Georgia case. Indonesia's outgoing president is accused of election interference. Former Thai Prime Minister Thaksin Shinawatra will be released from prison early. Global defense spending reached a record $2.2 trillion last year. U.S. inflation was worse than expected in January. The CDC plans to end its five-day COVID isolation rule. And a study finds proteins may be able to predict dementia. In our first story, the U.S. Senate passes a $95 billion Ukraine aid package. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, Reuters, Al Jazeera, the Associated Press, and Politico. The U.S. Senate on Tuesday in a bipartisan 70-29 to 29 vote after an overnight session and a working weekend passed a $95 billion aid package for Ukraine, Israel, and the Indo-Pacific. But the bill faces a stiff test in passing the House. The bill's passage, which required 22 Republicans joining most of the majority Democrats, comes a week after some Senate Republicans blocked a bill that would have combined aid for Ukraine and other allies with stricter enforcement of the U.S. southern border. The bill gives Ukraine $61 billion, provides Israel with $14 billion, and diverts $4.8 billion to the Indo-Pacific, including Taiwan. Also included is $9.15 billion in humanitarian assistance to civilians in Gaza, the occupied West Bank, Ukraine, and other conflict areas. Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson of Louisiana and his allies denounced the bill before passage, with Johnson criticizing its lack of border security provisions that would address the most pressing issue facing our country. Johnson sounded unlikely to even bridge the bill to a vote, as he said the House will have to continue to work its own will on these important matters. Thanks, Melissa. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts, and now our first spin is the Republican narrative from Breitbart. Republicans who voted to pass this bill are turncoats who are out of touch with the will of the people. The time has come to stop throwing good money after bad in a Ukraine-Russia war that is at a stalemate at best and continues to cost Ukraine uncountable lives and riches. Fortunately, the GOP-led House will do the right thing and kill this bill, while getting to work on legislation to address the southern border crisis. Here's the Democratic narrative from MSNBC. Republicans in both chambers who oppose this bill clearly don't value the national security of the U.S. and its allies. Western democracy as we know it is at stake, yet Republicans keep playing games over border provisions, which they seem to oppose or beg for depending on which way the wind is blowing. All measures to get this bill through the House should be utilized. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 50% chance there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement between Russia and Ukraine by April 2026. Can we just make it so that each thing we're trying to pass through Congress is just an individual thing and not oh, something yeah. else as uh, well? I think they call that a single rider issue, right? Isn't that? Can we just do that? Because 
Yeah. It feels like our issue here is that there's, oh, we want border security, but then you're tacking on Ukraine. Like, okay, I, I don't know. I don't want to pass judgment on either one of those issues, but let's do them separate. You know, like, let's let's do it. That right. Way. I, I mean, shouldn't everything be that way? Shouldn't we decide each issue individually? Because, you know, the if more, you're going mean, to say I everything am, affects everything, that's, you know, whatever. Let's just go back to the drawing board. Ever since McDonald's uh, put a moratorium on supersizing, I've been suspicious of combo meals. You know, if you start adding them up, if you stand at the menu and you add up, usually it's either the same price or you're not actually getting a deal. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I, I want my legislation a la carte. Cairo hosts hostage deal talks between Israel and Gaza. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Times of Israel, The Guardian, Axios, NPR Online News, and Euronews. As Israeli forces reportedly prepare to push into the southern Gaza city of Rafah, Egyptian, Qatari, Israeli, and U.S. officials met in Cairo on Tuesday to discuss an extended pause in fighting and another exchange of Israeli hostages held in Gaza for Palestinian prisoners. The meeting comes a day after U.S. President Joe Biden said during a press conference with King Abdullah II of Jordan that the U.S. will do everything possible to get another hostage deal, indicating that such a deal would create the conditions for something more enduring. During a Sunday phone call between Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Biden reportedly asked the Prime Minister to send an Israeli delegation to Cairo, with Netanyahu saying that Israel was ready for another hostage deal, even if it halted Israel's plans to enter Rafah but not at any price, according to unnamed Israeli officials. As the war progresses, Israel is facing increasing international criticism regarding its conduct in the war and settler violence in the West Bank. On Tuesday, France became the latest country following the U.S. and U.K. to impose sanctions against several dozen Israeli settlers accused of violently targeting Palestinians. Regarding tensions on the Lebanese border, an Israeli official denied that Israel had received a French proposal that would settle the status of disputed territory and see Hezbollah withdraw from the border, adding that there is no change in the northern theater. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has killed over 28,000 people in Gaza, the majority of whom were women and children. The war has also created a rapidly deteriorating humanitarian situation. The official Israeli death toll on October 7th stands at around 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in Gaza. Thank you, Scott. We'll start this round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative from CBS. The U.S. is doing everything it can to both ensure that Israel can eliminate Hamas's military capabilities and prevent regional escalation. Israel must be able to defend itself from terrorist attacks, whether from Gaza or elsewhere and the U.S. will always support Israel in maintaining its security. However, Netanyahu is going too far with the war in Gaza, and he must be willing to follow through on his promises and compromise as needed so that another extended truce can take effect, which will hopefully lead to a more permanent resolution to this conflict. And the Jerusalem Post brings us the pro-Israel narrative. Though this has been a tragic war, Israel must eliminate Hamas once and for all to ensure Israel's security. To eliminate its capacity for terror, Israel has been forced to use blunt tools to rout Hamas forces, as they are so deeply dug into Gaza's civil infrastructure. Indeed, the recent rescue operation into Rafah proves that Israel's tactics are bearing fruit, 
Israel has worked hard to compromise and ensure the safety of civilians, but it will have to go into Rafah if an agreement is not reached soon. Here's the pro-Palestine narrative from Al Jazeera. Israel continues to demonstrate that its war is not against Hamas, but against the Palestinian people as a whole. The humanitarian situation in Gaza is already far beyond catastrophic, as over one million Palestinians barely survive in dense and muddy tent camps while battling famine and disease. If Israel were to push into Rafah as it did Gaza City and Khan Yunis, the consequences would be absolutely dire. Narrative D from al Mayadeen. Hezbollah and the regional resistance will only end their attacks when Israel's war in Gaza ends and it withdraws its forces. Indeed, the resistance's primary goal is to end the war in Gaza, not start a far larger regional war. Foreign powers believe they can dictate to Hezbollah how it deals with Israel's aggression and impose concessions regarding the status of Lebanon's southern border. However, Hezbollah has the leverage needed to ensure that Lebanon gains if any agreement is reached. Trump seeks a Supreme Court pause in his 2020 election case. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, the Associated Press, Axios, and the New York Times. Former U.S. President Donald Trump's legal team Monday requested the U.S. Supreme Court issue a stay for an appeals court's ruling that Trump is not protected by presidential immunity. Trump's team is seeking more time to file an appeal. In August 2023, the U.S. Department of Justice indicted Trump on four counts, including conspiracy to defraud the U.S. for his alleged efforts to overturn current President Joe Biden's 2020 election win. Previously, the appellate court earlier this month ruled Trump could be held liable because it could not accept his argument, quote, that a president has unbounded authority to commit crimes, end quote, continuing that Trump's stance would collapse our system of separated powers. Trump's legal team is arguing that the appellate court committed a stunning breach from precedent when it issued such a momentous ruling so quickly. Previously, U.S. District Judge Tanya S. Chutkin in February indefinitely postponed Trump's March 4th trial date until a ruling on the immunity claims is made. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts has requested a DOJ response by next Tuesday. Thanks for that update, Melissa. We have an anti-Trump narrative from the L.A. Times. To save American democracy, the Supreme Court must reject Trump's argument and prevent the transformation of the office of the presidency into that of an uncheckable authoritarian ruler. Criminal liability ensures public officials have accountability. And here's a pro-Trump narrative from Vigilant News Network. With Democrats again weaponizing the justice system against Trump, it's important for the Supreme Court to step up and protect him and his right to appeal an unfair ruling. The case was rigged against him at the appellate court level, but hopefully justice will be served at the nation's highest court. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 60% chance that Trump will be convicted of at least one count in his federal court cases before the end of 2024. A judge says disqualification of D.A. Fonnie Willis is possible. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, Forbes, The Washington Examiner, Huffington Post, Washington Free Beacon, and NBC. According to Georgia Judge Scott McAfee, who is presiding over former President Donald Trump's election interference case, it's possible Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis could be disqualified from prosecuting the case. 
McAfee's statement comes after one of Trump's co-defendants, Mike Roman, alleged that Willis had a romantic relationship with Nathan Wade, the special prosecutor she hired to be on the case. McAfee said the court will have to discover whether that relationship was romantic or non-romantic in nature, when it formed, and whether it continues, as well as the extent of any benefit Willis gained from the relationship. Roman's attorney also argued that Wade's legal experience as a defense attorney was insufficient for the role he was hired, though McAfee ruled those allegations would not be part of the probe. While Willis and Wade confirmed their relationship last week, they claimed it began after Wade was hired and that he has no financial ties to Willis. However, Roman's attorney, Ashley Merchant, claims the relationship formed before Wade's hiring. Wade's $654,000 in compensation for his role in the case since 2022 has been called into question. The issue will be hashed out in court hearings beginning Thursday, with Wade's former law partner testifying first. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins, beginning with a Republican narrative from Fox News. Willis prosecuted the former president for political and personal benefit, offenses worthy of disqualification. She not only paid Wade hundreds of thousands of taxpayer dollars to go on luxury vacations, but she failed to publicly disclose her personal financial benefit from it. Why would she hide her financial stake in Wade's hiring if she did nothing wrong? Slate brings us a Democratic narrative. Whether Willis hired a romantic partner or not has no bearing on the case. She has also, under sworn testimony, stated that the costs of vacation she took with Wade were split evenly, which rules out her hiring him for personal financial benefit. This case is of national importance and must continue despite unfounded and bad faith complaints from the pro-Trump camp. And here's another nerd narrative from Metaculus, saying there's a 45% chance that Donald Trump will be jailed or incarcerated before January 1st, 2030. I also how, don't like how we have to say attorneys general now instead of attorney generals. Um, I know it makes more sense because they're not generals, they're attorneys, mm. and the general is describing what type of attorney they are. But uh, right, it always right. sounds a little Just pompous a for someone attorney. to say attorneys in general. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember once in college I had this argument of it should be P-O. I'm P-O, not P-O'd. You know, if you're right. pissed oh, off. Oh, it's definitely by, by attorney general logic, it should be P-O. Yes, you're right. But then that starts yeah. to sound like P-O. I'm a P-O. It sounds, <laughs> sounds, sounds terrible. I'm oh. a P-O. Indonesia's outgoing president is accused of election interference. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Barron's, Reuters, and the South China Morning Post. Following the release of an investigative documentary on Sunday, outgoing Indonesian President Joko Widodo is facing accusations of using state money and officials to help prop up the candidacy of current Defense Minister Prabowo Subianto. In response to the allegations, which included manipulating election rules, hundreds of Indonesian students took to the streets to protest. While Joko hasn't specifically endorsed any candidate, he's made appearances with Prabowo and his son is running as the defense minister's vice presidential candidate. Critics believe his connection to Prabowo, who is currently polling above 50 percent, is unjustly swaying the election. Joko's son was unable to join the election ticket until the head of the constitutional court, 
Jibran Rakabuming Raka, who is Joko's uncle, created a legal loophole in one of his rulings. The allegations and subsequent protests came as the country entered a calm period ahead of Wednesday's election, with 25,000 police deployed to ensure safety and remove campaign billboards. The other two candidates seeking the presidency, which requires 50% of the vote, otherwise the top two contenders enter a runoff in June, are Ganjar Pranowo, a populist member of Joko's, and opposition candidate Anias Baswidan. Thanks for that update, Melissa. The Jakarta Post brings us Narrative A. Indonesia's overall corruption level has risen since Widodo took office. A blatant example of this was the outgoing president's decision to dissolve the Corruption Eradication Commission, which was developed during the post-dictatorship anti-corruption movement in 2004. Widodo has intentionally freed corrupt government officials from the eyes of the law, so it makes sense that he'd interfere in an election, too. Nikkei Asia brings us Narrative B. If the endorsement of President Widodo was supposed to be an indictment on Prabowo's character, the opinion polls would beg to differ. The reason Prabowo is now the frontrunner in this race is because of his connection to Widodo, whose popularity is also quite strong. Widodo and his preferred candidate are also polling well with younger voters, a demographic a duly elected leader usually needs. Former Thai Prime Minister Thaksin will be freed early. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Time Magazine, Reuters, The Financial Times, CNN, Al Jazeera, and The Guardian. Thailand's former Prime Minister Thaksin Shinawatra is expected to be freed, potentially by this weekend. This comes six months after his return from 15 years in self-imposed exile and subsequent arrest. He was sentenced to eight years in prison for abuse of power and corruption charges last August, but his jail term was reduced to one year as Thailand's king granted him a royal pardon. Prime Minister Sretra Tavison announced Tuesday that the 74-year-old billionaire has been granted parole in line with the Corrections Department regulations. Due to an undisclosed health condition, Thaksin spent the past six months in hospital detention. According to Thai laws, detainees aged 70 and over suffering from serious illnesses can be granted early release from prison if they have served at least six months or one-third of their sentence. Ousted by the military in 2006 and convicted in absentia in 2008, Toxin is reportedly among 930 inmates who were granted amnesty. His younger sister, Yingluk Shinawatra, was also ousted from office by the military in 2014 after winning the 2011 election. Following the 2023 election, his Pew Thai party entered a coalition with its former military rivals to prevent the progressive move forward from forming a government, naming Pew Thai Sretra prime minister just hours after Toxin returned to the country. Those were the facts. Here are the spins, starting with a narrative A from The Diplomat. Thaksin Shinawatra remains one of Thailand's most divisive political figures. His release from prison at a tense political time shows that the Thai elite isn't committed to democracy. When rival forces join hands to release a populist leader accused of severe human rights abuses, it's clear that the country's powerful conservative and royalist establishment wants to protect the status quo at any cost. And a narrative B from Nikkei Asia. Toxin's release isn't politically motivated. He had met the criteria for parole as he's over 70, suffers from chronic illness, and has completed his six months. 
He represents the people at the grassroots level, which is why Toxin has been a central figure in Thai politics for two decades. Now that he's free, Toxin could serve the country again, balance urban and rural interests, and bring long-sought political stability. And here's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 75% chance that Thailand will experience a successful coup d'etat before 2040. I think it gets hard to be someone over 70. That starts getting a little hard, I would imagine. So being in prison, oh, yeah. you, you know, not to I have... mean, uh, how about how every guy's prostate is just a ticking time bomb? Like That sucks. You, that's the real, like, game over screen for every guy. All that we're wondering, will you die of something else before you're killed by your prostate? <laughs> you know, that's the race. Because if, if nothing else gets you as a guy, your prostate is going to get you. Now, yeah. is the question is, will your prostate get you at age 50 or at age 120? Right. But if you somehow got there, it was going to get you. You know, like yep. that's 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 you know, what they, it's even, for. Was, it's there to kill was, you. It, it, no, it really is. Like that's <laughs> that's the the regulator on, you know, got enough guys. OK, Genghis Khan, you're taking over the world. Well, let's just give it a give it a couple of years because that prostate's coming in. Alexander the Great. Oh, you got a great prostate, too. You know, it's pretty great. <laughs> it's pretty great uh, as in enlarged. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. A great, a vast prostate. <laughs> a new report says global defense spending has jumped to a record $2.2 trillion in 2023. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Independent, CTV News, and ABC. According to the London-based International Institute for Strategic Studies, global defense spending reached a record $2.2 trillion in 2023 up 9% due to the conflict in Ukraine, Israel's war with Gaza, and Indo-Pacific tensions. The figure is expected to climb this year. According to the report, NATO has witnessed an even greater rise. Since 2014, when Russia seized Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula, non-U.S. alliance members have raised military spending by 32%. NATO spends close to 60% of the $2.2 trillion, with the U.S. holding a majority of that spending. Europe's military assistance to Ukraine has increased the total expenditure considerably. According to the report, the current military security situation heralds what is likely to be a more dangerous decade. The research cites rising Arctic tensions, North Korea's desire for nuclear weapons, and military regimes in the Sahel region as factors. The report stated that the just-in-time philosophy that has dominated weapons manufacturing for nearly three decades is giving way to a just-in-case approach. However, changing production methods has proven to be a challenge. Thanks, Melissa. ABC News brings us a pro-establishment narrative. Given Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Hamas's attack on Israel, and China's assertiveness in the South China Sea, global military spending has surged, generating global instability. The world spent $2.2 trillion on weapons last year, this year, we will see an even greater increase in global defense spending, particularly if the West does not want Russia to win in Ukraine. Many governments are increasing weapons production and stockpiling to prepare for potential long-term conflicts. And here's the establishment critical narrative from the Observer Research Foundation. <clears throat> the UN has failed with its basic purpose, to maintain international peace and security. The U.N. Security Council is paralyzed by more than dozens of military conflicts around the world, and the international body must act immediately to address them. 
In the absence of a strong UN, military spending is rising. The rules-based international order is clearly not functioning well, given the failure of its institutions to curb global arms spending and conflict. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 50% chance that the world will spend 2.3% of the world GDP on military expenses in the year 2030. U.S. inflation remained higher than expected in January. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, CBS, CNBC, NBC, and Yahoo Finance. U.S. inflation in January came in hotter than anticipated as the Consumer Price Index, or CPI, rose 0.3% month over month and 3.1% since January 2023, according to data released Tuesday by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. U.S. prices increased at a slower rate compared to December, when annual inflation was 3.4%. January's figure remained higher than the 2.9% expectation forecasted by economists. January's 0.3% increase also sat above the 0.2% expectation, and core inflation rose 3.9% annually and 0.4% monthly, holding steady from December. However, economists projected those figures to sit at 3.7% and 0.3% respectively. The rise in CPI, a broad measure of consumer prices for goods and services, was driven by a 6% annual rise in shelter prices, and a 0.6% monthly increase. Meanwhile, food prices increased 0.4% on the month, while energy fell 0.9%, primarily due to a 3.3% dip in gas prices. The Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 700 points, or 1.8%, and the S&P 500 and NASDAQ Composite slid 1.7% and 2% respectively in response to the new data. Bond yields increased, with the 10-year Treasury note rising to 4.28%. Previously, inflation prompted the Federal Reserve to raise the key interest rate 11 consecutive times from March 2022 to July 2023 in hopes of reaching its benchmark goal of 2%, but the central bank has held rates steady at a 22-year high of 5.4%. Thank you, Scott. We'll start this round with Republican narrative from The Daily Caller. Despite the Fed hiking interest rates astronomically, the Biden administration has failed to get inflation under control. The American people can see the president's failure every time they open their wallets. This latest report means the Fed won't be cutting rates and the U.S. economy will remain shackled by Biden's inflation. And the Democratic narrative comes from PBS NewsHour. It's unrealistic for the economy to beat every monthly forecast, but inflation has been cooling dramatically and that trend continued in January. Under Biden, the economy is better than it was a year ago and is on its way to a full recovery. Bidenomics continues to be a boon to the American consumer. And here's another nerd narrative from Metaculus that says there's a 38% chance that U.S. core CPI inflation will be above 3% in December 2024. How's the economy doing for you over there? I think diners increased their prices around here. You know, South Jersey, Eastern Pennsylvania, everything's pretty much a diner. That's 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 what that's the diner country. And I feel like they increased their prices last year when eggs were like eight bucks a dozen, which I'm sure is murder on diners. Like that's that's uh, that's a disaster. And I feel like they increased their prices. 
on everything, but then never went down after uh, the eggs went back down because now eggs are kind of back to normal. Right. Yeah, they just they said, uh, you know, we got used to this new higher price that everyone's paying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm <laughs> probably was long overdue or something, but, you know. You know, you used to be able to like add an extra egg for like 75 cents. You know, like, oh, it's three eggs. Oh, four eggs over easy instead. Throw an extra egg on there for 75 cents. Now it's like three bucks for an extra egg or something. Those are avocado prices. The CDC will end the five-day COVID isolation rule. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Post, CNN, Just the News, and Washington Post. The U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention is reportedly planning to end its current recommendations of isolation for five days after testing positive for COVID. Once implemented, the isolation policy change, the first since the five-day suggestion took effect in 2021, will reportedly recommend that people no longer need to isolate once they've had no fever for 24 hours and their symptoms are mild or improving. The report on the new policy, which is expected to be officially announced in April, comes alongside similar isolation policy changes in Oregon and California. Once in place, it would treat COVID the same as the flu and RSV. The revised recommendation has reportedly been in the works since last August, with CDC Director Mandy Cohen issuing a memo in January that alluded to the change. The revision plan was delayed last fall amid a rise in COVID cases. The decision from federal and state health departments also followed new CDC data showing weekly COVID deaths across the country as 2,300 and hospitalizations at 20,000. Among the 16 countries California reviewed for its decision, only Germany and Ireland still have five-day mandates. Thanks, Melissa. Narrative A comes from Naked Capitalism. The problem with comparing COVID to the flu or RSV is that the latter pair of illnesses can't lead to long forms, as is the case with long COVID. The five-day isolation rule was and still should be used to ensure that those who have contracted the illness, whether asymptomatic or not, don't give it to someone who could then develop long-term issues. And the Wall Street Journal brings us narrative B. Isolating over minor symptoms was something we did early during COVID, but the pandemic is now over and it's time to move on. One of the most serious issues related to this is the skyrocketing rates of chronic absenteeism across America's schools. Despite most governments having dropped old COVID rules, record numbers of students are still using the memory of the pandemic as an excuse to skip class and stop learning. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 5% chance that a new SARS-CoV-2 variant, classified as a variant of concern, or worse, will result in at least 20,000 daily incident COVID hospitalizations in the United States before July 1st, 2025. Whew. Almost didn't make it through that narrative. Yeah. That was a... Yeah, I, knew, I, mean, I, need, I need to uh, isolate for five days after that narrative. <laughs> So what oh, do you think? Man. Is so now we've arrived at the point where COVID is the flu, I guess, in from I in think a, in we're pra- really a, it, it seems sense. like yeah, from a practical sense it seems like we're really getting there. But it's still I mean it's it's still hard. I mean if if, if it's going around whatever it is, like my kids school just had a had a COVID breakout and so there weren't enough teachers to teach the class, so they had to close down for a couple of days. So, you know, whether or not they need to isolate for 10 days, it's you know, they did you know, our, our county says you have to wear masks for another 10 days after that. Um, 
you know, it's like, well, if there's not enough teachers, then, then there can't be no learning. <laughs> it's, it's just the way it goes. Yeah. Given the way we treat teachers, you don't have to twist their arm to get them to stay home, I bet. Yeah. Um, like, you, I can, I'm supposed to stay home. Sure. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just close it. Just shut it down, everyone. <laughs> I would change the incentives somehow to make it so there was an incentive for top, top people to have better reason to be a teacher than just out of the goodness of their heart. Cause that's basically why top people would be teachers at this point. There's not yeah. like a incentive. And luckily a bunch of people do that and that's wonderful, but I would, you know, what are the things that attract high achieving people and hi highly effective people to jobs and figure out how to get more of those people into our schools? That's what I would, that would be like my moonshot. If I was president, you know, like, oh, we want to get a man on the moon. Oh, we want to, you know, do whatever. Like that would be my, my project, my, my pet project. I would be getting people to incentivize the best people to become school teachers somehow. I don't know how to do that. I haven't started my moonshot yet. That would be my project. <laughs> I think you got to start with the administration. I mean, the school district administration, not the politics. But I was talking to a uh, one of my clients is is in the public school uh, district uh, as a teacher, and uh, and she said, you know, it depends district to district. You know, like from from the Seattle City to Highline School District to Pierce County, like uh, she's experienced all three. It's, some are a mess, and some have got it together. And like, there's a there's a number too, right? I think this was a Malcolm Gladwell thing, uh, you know, that said like a certain amount of like troops of monkeys or uh, primates would would do well to 200, right? And then beyond that, it stopped feeling like a community. Um, mm -hmm. And and uh, the school districts were kind of the same way. There was like, you know, two high schools. I'm I'm making up these numbers, but it was small, sure. right? Two two high schools, four middle schools, eight elementary schools, and everyone could be kind of accountable and accounted for. And beyond that, like that's when things really started getting messy. They got too big. So I feel like all the principals and stuff of the schools I was at, it was just the biggest thing that anyone would let them be in charge of. Like, all right, <laughs> I, you know, all right, I need to be in charge of something. What's the biggest thing I can get? I can't be president. I can't be the governor. I can't be whatever. Okay, <laughs> I'm a junior high principal. That's what I'm in charge of. It's like, oh, geez, it's the worst. Yeah, yeah I'm sure that that's a problem with many industries is like, this is where I'm going to make my mark. <laughs> I'm going to make all these kids' lives miserable. Our final story, a new study shows that proteins may predict dementia years in advance. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, the journal Nature, and University of Warwick. A new study of frozen blood samples, which was published in the journal Nature Aging, has found a group of proteins that can help predict multiple forms of dementia 10 years before the disease is diagnosed. After screening blood samples from over 50,000 healthy adults in the UK biobank over 14 years, 1,417 of them developed dementia. The researchers found that the proteins GFAP, NEFL, GDF15, and LTBP2 are firmly correlated with dementia. Using an artificial intelligence-supported analysis system controlling for age, sex, education level, and genetics, the researchers were able to correlate the presence of these proteins with the development of dementia with 90% accuracy. While previous research has already pinned the proteins GFAP and GDF15 as potential links to Alzheimer's disease, 
This study found that people with high levels of GFAP were twice as likely to develop dementia and roughly three times as likely to get Alzheimer's. While the study's authors noted that their work has yet to be independently verified, one of the proteins correlated with dementia, neurofilament light, is already being used for diagnosing and monitoring other diseases, including multiple sclerosis. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. We'll start with a narrative A from the Alzheimer's Society. As dementia diagnostic technology grows more and more accurate, it's now time to get the countless people who knowingly and unknowingly suffer from this disease access to this potentially life-saving technology. This can include putting patients with dementia symptoms into clinical trials like these as well as starting to produce and distribute such blood tests throughout society at large. And the National Center for Biotechnology Information brings us Narrative B. While developing state-of-the-art diagnostic tests is certainly important, the public should also be aware of known preventative steps people can take to minimize the risk of developing dementia. Leading medical institutions, such as the journal The Lancet, have suggested that low education levels, hearing loss, obesity, and high blood pressure among other things, are all fixable comorbidities linked to dementia. It's vital to address root cause stressors. And here's the nerd narrative from Metaculus, saying there's a 99% chance that there will be a breakthrough in protein structure prediction by 2031. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, February 14th, 2024. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To find out more about Verity, you can visit our website, verity.news, or download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. Verity.